Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 570th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who composts food anaerobically. We're talking with Matt Arthur about Bokashi composting. Matt is a second-generation regenerative farmer growing specialty-cut flowers, expanding an apiary, and collecting residential food waste in Missouri. His focus is on soil health, native plants, and integrated pest management. He applies lessons learned from working in a major agribusiness to his small-scale intensive farming practices. His family-owned row crop farm since 1974 grows corn, soy, and wheat using no-till and cover crops for drylands agriculture. Matt also sells Bokashi kits and organic Mokashi bran for indoor anaerobic composting, as well as composting worms and worm towers. Welcome to the show today, Matt. Are you ready to rock Bokashi? Absolutely. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I'd love to. I grew up on a road crop farm in central Missouri, and my wife and I had always planned to move back and get into agriculture ourselves. And three years ago, we started turning a hay pasture into a small cut flower field, so growing in permanent raised beds uh, in what used to be a pasture. Now we have small hoop house. We have our permanent bed set up and we've uh, begun supplementing our soil with bakashi that we make from residential food waste in the St. Louis and Central Missouri area. Wow. So let's dive into that because we've not really had anybody talking about bokashi composting. What is bokashi? Bokashi is an anaerobic system that, that came out of East Asia and has spread worldwide. It's, uh, it's a totally different process from aerobic composting, which is dominant here in the U.S. Bokashi is actually a fermentation process where you take food waste or agricultural waste, inoculate it with a, a bran, typically rice or wheat or another surplus, that you add effective microbes into, a mixture of lactobacillus and yeast, other microbes. When you seal it in the container, it pickles the food, uh, produces some acidic liquid that you drain off. And after two to three weeks, you have a, f- a pickled food waste that you can dig into your soil, 
or add to an existing hot pile or, or use uh, in container gardening. Pickled food waste. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It, it still looks like the food you put in, but as if you had actually pickled it intentionally. So the, the Mikashi process, the first thing that happens, the lactobacillus take over in that airless anaerobic container, uh-huh. and they drop the pH to the high threes. So it becomes very acidic. And in that pH drop, it knocks out most of the competing microbes. So it takes care of anything that might be on the food surface that might be pathogenic. It also takes care of competitors that produce the putrid smell and the bad odors. After the pH drops, the lactobacillus is done, and the other things that you add to that inoculant do their business and break down the cell walls and produce an uh, output that's stable. It smells a bit like uh, strong rye bread or stale beer. And once you put that into your soil, just a few inches below the surface, the existing soil microbes can just tear through it because it's already been pre-digested for them. And it turns into organic matter in, in two to three additional weeks. Wow. So I would guess also Bokashi might be good added to worm bins. We feed a lot of Bokashi to our worm bins. So at our farm, in addition to the flower field and the apiary, we have probably 100 pounds of composting worms right now, and we're continuing to expand. So when we take food waste, we make Bokashi in, in large containers, and a portion of that is fed directly to the worms, and the rest we make hot aerobic compost with because we find that's also a really useful product. Yeah. And so what is anaerobic? It's a term that we've batted around several times already. So anaerobic means without oxygen, in contrast to traditional composting that you see where it's aerobic. In an aerobic pile, you add food waste mixed with a carbon source so that the ratio is appropriate for microbes to eat the food. And then you keep turning it repeatedly. It can be as often as every three or four days or as little as once a season, depending on the system. And that the turning incorporates air and provides oxygen to the microbes that are actually doing the work of digesting that food waste and carbon. In an anaerobic system, there is no air. And in fact, you seal the container tightly so that a completely separate class of organisms do the digestion of the food. And it, it, it's really fascinating because... In an anaerobic Bokashi system, there's no breakdown of the carbon chains, and so there's no production of methane, there's no production of other gases that, that are resulting from the, the huge mass of microbes in a hot pile. It's, uh, it's actually a, technically a fermentation, and so you get an output that on average appears to have higher levels of phosphorus, higher levels of some other available nutrients, and is incorporated into the soil as an amendment below the soil surface, whereas aerobic compost is typically applied to the soil surface. Interesting. And what does a Bokashi composter look like? They come in a variety of shapes, but essentially imagine a, a five-gallon bucket or a similar size with a tight lid that can seal on, and then a spigot towards the bottom and a food grate slightly above the spigot. So you pack food waste and bran, the inoculated bran, into this, this paint bucket or other modified container, use the spigot to drain off the leachate that results as the microbes do their digestion and produce a, a fairly dry, you know, stable Akashi output. Interesting. And then you just take it and bury it in the yard. Yeah. And there's a, it's actually fantastic for small yards. One of the big complaints that, that we have from our customers is that they don't have space in an urban area to do hot piles. You need about a cubic yard of food waste to heat up to temperature. Ideally, a hot compost pile will reach 135, 140 degrees for at least three or four days. 
that's what renders seeds non-viable and also takes care of the pathogens that might be on your food, on your spinach or your chicken or whatever. But you do need a fairly sizable bin. And to turn it, you need at least one other bin to turn it into. So if you think about St. Louis, where I lived when I started this project, typically it's brownstones or small houses with, you know, minimal distance between. There's not a lot of great locations for a nine foot by three foot area to set aside for composting. And there's also, of course, urban animals, fox, raccoons, you know, coyote. Bakashi composting, because it takes place in a sealed container, is done inside, typically under the kitchen sink or on the porch, and is very scalable. So you have one bucket. If you have a lot of food waste, you have two or three or even four, but they're very modular. So you just add additional Bakashi buckets and stack them as you need more, more space. The output, even very small raised beds can incorporate a large amount of Bakashi. It breaks down so fast in the soil that, let's say you have a four-by-eight bed, well, you take one square foot, bury the half month Bakashi, cover it. The second half of the month is another square foot, cover it. By the time your next bin is ready, the first square foot's already done. So most people just do a checkerboard across a four foot or six foot or eight foot square area. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the season, can add huge amounts of organic material and the minerals that come with it to their even raised planter beds. Wow, that makes it super simple. It really is. And what do you like so much about Bokashi? I like that it doesn't produce the gas, the off-gassing that hot piles do. Mm-hmm. Hot piles consume about half of the mass of the food waste during the aerobic composting process, which means that those microbes in the pile that are doing the work are, are actually just eating for themselves. And so you do, you do cut the amount of potential organic matter you can capture by about half in a hot pile. And I love seeing... Bakashi, where you basically lose water and a very small percentage of the food waste, you keep all of that in your home garden soil. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. I also like that it doesn't produce offensive odors. We see a lot of people have hot piles that are mismanaged or, or go awry, and they can putrefy and really produce pretty bad smells from even a pretty small pile and, and the leachate that comes with that. And Bakashi eliminates all of that because it's a sealed container and you control the draining of the, the liquid. So all you smell is a little bit of that yeasty, dry smell when you take the lid off to add more food waste. And when it's done, it's a, a totally innocuous, almost odorless output that you then just bury in a pretty shallow area. So I really like that it avoids some of the problems that turn people off of composting mm-hmm. while also keeping all of those nutrients and organic matter highly available for your plants. Yeah, I, I actually give a class called non-composting because people come to me and they say, Greg, I want to compost. And I say to them, well, what do you have to compost? And they say, kitchen scraps. It's like, well, you know, worm bins are yeah. good. And now I can suggest Bokashi. But if you're going to do a traditional thermophilic hot composting bin, you're right. You need a three by three by three cube at least to get it heated up. And that's just, that is a lot of material. And you also need a source of carbon throughout the year. And most people don't have that. And and even people who understand the ratio and how to mix greens and browns, when it comes to this time of the year, everything's green. There are no leaves falling that you can save and keep for your pile. There are no tree trimmers who are looking to dispose of yards and yards of shredded wood. So you have these dearth periods where you're scrambling to keep your pile healthy before fall comes even another great source of carbon. Bakashi, it avoids all of that. You only need a pound or two pounds of bran per month 
most people. Larger waste streams, obviously, maybe three or four pounds a month, but it's a very manageable amount of input compared to the volume of food scraps and the volume of carbon you need to keep the thermophilic pile in good shape. Wow. So I want to talk about a couple things before we go on to the rest of your farm, and that is the scale at which you do Bokashi. You're actually collecting food waste from people. Tell me about that. Right. So three years ago, when we began turning our, our hayfield into a cut flower farm, we had a really hard time finding high-quality inputs for our soil. We're totally committed to soil health, and we are a firm no-till flower field, which means we don't rototill the beds to prepare them. Once we make the bed, we never till it again. And we get the soil health re through a diverse mix of cover crops and some inputs either to remineralize the soil or to add essentially healthy microbes to get the soil biology in shape. We were really disappointed with the quality available on the commercial market, particularly when we started looking at, at bringing in yards and yards of compost. I think commercial composters do a good job with the inputs they have, but most of that compost is done in windrows that are the length of the football field, turned mechanically, and include anything that could possibly be thrown into a bin, ranging from diseased plants to pallets. And we thought, well, what if we made our own compost? And we started planning that, and it seemed reasonable given our, our scale. And we thought perhaps we'd find people in the area who'd like us to provide the service of collecting their food waste to keep us in the landfill, that we could then make compost the way we thought we should with the amendments added in at the beginning that we thought we'd like to have in. Uh, we could control the pH and the moisture. And so we started very small residential composting business two and a half years ago, and we now collect about 1,000 pounds of food waste a week, and we make bakashi from every pound of that. And use it for our composting worms, or uh, we do make hot aerobic compost from the bakashi that we use for soil mixes and some pot of soil. Thousand pounds a week? Yeah, thousand pounds a week. Wow. And are, are you delivering some of that back to the people you're getting the food waste from? Yeah, we do. It's, we do. Every season, at least twice a year, we take the hot piles that have cured, they're totally undifferentiated organic matter, and we sift them to a half inch. And everything below a half inch goes back to our customers. And everything larger than a half inch, we keep as a, a microbe-enriched mulch that we top dress our beds with in the fall. Wow. Boy, you've got this thing figured out, don't you? It's really fun. It is really fun. And how many customers do you have that you're collecting 1,000 pounds of food waste a week from? Right now, 130-some. People are averaging about 7.5 pounds a week maybe a little bit higher with uh, the COVID pandemic, keeping people home cooking more. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of biweekly customers. And, and so we, you know, it's not 130 a week. It's 130 customers weekly or biweekly. Yeah. And, um, you know, Bakashi is great for our system. We, we used to do only aerobic compost when we started because that's what I was most familiar with. It's what I'd done for my life, what my, my parents had done. And so it just seems natural to do larger and larger hot piles that, Managing hot piles with pitchforks is a challenge because <laughs> of the, the mass, the weight involved. Oh, yeah. But also maintaining moisture appropriately. You have to keep them at the right moisture level. And Missouri is 90s in the summer. We often get weeks of drought. So mixing and remixing and wetting and rewetting made it, made it clear that we should think about other options. I'd had a Bakashi bin in our house five years at that point. I just never thought about scaling it. 
And about a year ago, we made the decision to switch over to all Bakashi for the, the residential composting and then either divert it to worms or hot piles after the initial Bakashi composting, which deals with, again, all of the pathogenic issues. This Bakashi pre-composting fits really well with this. We also do use some of the Bakashi directly in the soil. When we do create new raised beds, which has flowed, but when we do, we can then bury in several hundred pounds of Bakashi directly at the time we create the beds and then inoculate with worm castings for that biology so that from the from the jump, the first things we put in have organic matter, have nutrients, have the microbes available to feed the roots. And it's really made a huge difference to our farming operation. Cool. And you charge for this service? We do charge for it. Yeah, we do. The charge covers, of course, the cost of the bucket and the, the miles we put on vehicles. And then the inputs we have, we do have you know, some water and, and some wood chips, things like that. We try to keep the price appropriate. It's yeah. $24 a month for people who do weekly pickup. Nice. Well, congratulations on your success there. Uh, it's been really fun. And it's been incredible to be able to scale up the worm bin because, in our view, worm castings are just an unparalleled source of, of fertility through the, just the dominance of the microbes they have. Worms evolved to host basically only beneficial microbes in their guts. And applying worm castings regularly has just transformed the health of the soil. Oh, I'll bet. I bet your flowers just flourish. Oh, I love it. We'd really like people at home to think about having a Bakashi bin and a worm bin in their house so they can, one, keep their food waste at home and not need a service, and two, get pure organic matter and also a steady source of those castings for houseplants, container plants, vegetable garden. So I think at a small scale, it's probably the most effective way to provide healthy soils to your garden is to have a Bakashi bin and then a worm bin right next to it. Mm -hmm. But it also works at a fairly large scale for us. So I think it's a really flexible system. I've got people to look into. Nice. And so you mentioned people doing this at home. You sell a kit. Tell me about the kit. We do. How do people get started? Yeah, we sell. The key is that the container has to be sealed. That one's easy. It has to have a spigot that doesn't leak to allow people to drain out the leachate. When that lactobacillus goes to work, it produces a decent volume of, of liquid from the material you're composting as it breaks down the cell wall and, and lets those, uh, that stuff degrade. So you need to be able to drain that out so that the liquid in the bin doesn't prevent the lactobacillus from working its way all the way to the bottom. And we found it was very hard to make that ourselves. We did try several prototypes which spigots you can get from a hardware store and different commercially available buckets. And we eventually had a manufacturer contract make buckets for us. They have a standard spigot, our logo, a lid with instructions, and a handle. So you can buy one or two or four and just keep scaling. We also sell brand. We make Mokashi, Mokashi brand from an organic wheat mill just across the river in Illinois that we inoculate ourselves at our farm with effective microbes, and we sell that by the pound also so that people can use totally organic inputs if they'd like and maintain some confidence in the, the level of their, of their soil movement. So I order a bucket from you, and it's ready to go when it gets here, right? Yeah, we, we ship a bucket with brand and instructions and a little cup to use with the spigot and a little pusher to keep the food waste really tight in the bucket, and you can start putting food in it five minutes after you open the box. 
Wow. And where do we find those at? You can go to our website. It's blhfarm.com and look on our shop. Uh, and uh, I think you can also find us on Google. It's really exciting. It's really exciting for us because we feel like as farmers, we can directly impact the land that we're working. That's where mm-hmm. we can have the greatest impact. But it's been really neat to be able to ship these across the country. We I shipped one to Washington State yesterday to think about people that I've never met, that will never buy our flowers, that we can't serve as a weekly customer, being able to keep their food waste at home using Bakashi with our bin. It's really neat. Yeah. And how much food waste can I put in a five-gallon bucket? So this, this been about 24 pounds on average is what you can pack in. Uh, it's, it's hard to give a weekly estimate because people's diets are so different. But I would say typical family, you would think two buckets would cover you for the month. You fill one, and in the two weeks that it's working, you fill the second one, you empty the first, use it again, and it's a good cycle. Maybe uh, a person living alone would need one bucket for the month, and then the second bucket could fill the second month. Uh, but it holds about 24 pounds of food waste. Wow. How cool is that? And what what kind of obstacles might a beginner run into? So I get this, it arrives on my doorstep. What's the process and what obstacles am I going to run into? I will say that Bokashi composting is much, much harder to do wrong than aerobic composting. <laughs> right. And the, it really is. The, the number one issue I see is people leaving that lid cracked. They say, well, it's mainly sealed. I'll just keep it just loosely on top so I can just scrape a plate in without even having to lift it up. It's an anaerobic system. It really has to be closed if you're not putting food into it. So if you leave it open to the air, it'll do what food waste would do if you left on your countertop. If you keep it closed, it's really pretty hard to mess up. Nice. Anything else you want to cover about Bokashi? There's not a lot on the internet about Bokashi because it's just not a widespread practice in the U.S. Uh In other parts of the world, it is the dominant form of composting. And if you look at Japan, Korea, Australia, large-scale farms are using modified Bokashi to compost huge volumes of agricultural residue and enormous volumes of residential food scraps. So Tokyo, as a prime example, most apartment buildings have central Bokashi collection areas where each apartment produces finished Bokashi and adds it to a central bin at their schedule. And I think if you were in Japan looking on Japanese internet, you'd find a wealth of resources. Wow. As an American looking online, I think it, it feels intimidating because so much of our composting history is about aerobic backyard tumblers, backyard bins. And I think people are hesitant to embrace Bakashi because there's not as much online as there is for a hot pile. So I'd encourage people, you know, just try it. Check it out. It's a totally different approach, absolutely, but it's really neat. And it lets you keep it in your house, you know, where you can see it working and use it in your garden in a, in a direct way. It's really, it's really neat. So the bucket that I buy from you, it comes with everything I need. It comes with instructions to get you up and running. Yeah, and the instructions are really simple. You sprinkle the bran, which is what holds the microbes to get it started. You add food waste, you sprinkle bran, add food waste, sprinkle bran, repeat until the container is full. Then you close that lid every two or three days, just drain out the liquid, and then wait three weeks and you're done. Now, that liquid that's coming out of it, is it full of microorganisms? No, not at first. It's initially very acidic because the first stage of this is dominated by lactobacillus, which are acid-producing bacteria. Mm-hmm. So the initial few times you turn that spigot, it'll be extremely, it'll be an acid liquid that's mainly un, not, it's not super useful to you. Later on, 
you do get some lipids and some minerals coming out. I, there's a pretty healthy debate now in the Bakashi community about how to best use that. I'd say the consensus right now is dilute it a little bit to take care of the acid, spread on your lawn, or you know, pour it down the drain and, and just focus on using the, the food weights, the solid food weights at the end. Excellent. And we haven't touched on this at all, but you do cut flowers as well. And that's actually something that's becoming a fairly big business, locally grown organic cut flowers. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. I mean, the beauty of cut flowers is apparent. What people don't understand is that what you see in the supermarket and florists is really what can be shipped in because uh, the industry has moved to growing in you know, Ecuador, Colombia, Holland, East Africa. And there are some amazing flower producers, just unbelievable producers that are providing flowers at scale. You can get two dozen roses for $14 at Valentine's Day. But the selection you get is constrained by the requirement to be shippable. So it's so neat to see these locally grown flowers come on the market because our farm, the thousands of other farms around the country, can grow things that are either too tender to be shipped or have to be fully open at the time you cut them, like a dahlia or gladiola, some of the other really beautiful heirloom romantic flowers, or mm -hmm. they need an environment that just can't be replicated on a 100-acre greenhouse uh, huge scale. I think it's an incredible movement. I love it. We're members of the, of the American Slow Flowers Organization and uh, American Grown Flowers, and I think it's a really cool crop. Nice. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, I'll talk about the Kashi failure. Yeah, this is one that I still think about a lot. When we first went to larger scale Akashi production, we spent a long time trying to find a source of organic brand we could use. It, we eventually found a mill in Illinois that was selling organic wheat bran, and we got a thousand pound tote bag, drove out, put it in the trailer, came back, ran into an enormous thunderstorm, oh got back gosh. to the warehouse. Yeah, just terrible. It, one of these Midwestern storms that comes up and it just, you just know, can't see ahead of you and you're driving with this trailer get back, unload it, and then came back two days later to make 300 pounds of Akashi brand, opened that sling bag, which is made of a, like a synthetic cloth, and found that in that two days, green mold had completely taken over that bag of, of brand. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it's a growth medium. It's, a, it's pure carbon. It's, it's essentially sterile. It's just been milled, and it's just ready to be used by microbes for their own purposes. And we'd given them perfect conditions to grow. And whatever mold had floated through Missouri after that storm found this wonderful host and just took it over. And, you know, we just, our eyes were wide and our jaws dropped and we were just, just shocked. So we learned a really valuable lesson. Once it's milled, it's, it's got to be colonized by something. And we have to make sure it's colonized by the microorganisms that, that we'd like to encourage and not chance, you know, molds and funguses in the air. So did you end up composting it, throwing it away? Yeah, we ended up using it uh, as a carbon source for a hot pile. Brand's tough to compost because it can mat up and clump, and so we ended up adding it gradually to piles over months, actually. <laughs> but, but we learned a lot about it, and, and I think we've gotten our system down now, and now we're, we're producing Makashi brand that we're really happy with. And what do you consider your biggest success the biggest success I think of when I first overwintered snapdragons and then in May had four-foot stems of beautiful pink flowers. It really felt like I'd become a flower farmer. Nice. 
So you've been flower farming now for a while. Tell me a little bit more about how you do that. This is our third year. So we started in the fall and planted 150 peony. They take three years to mature. So we wanted to get our perennials in early. So peony and ilex, some other perennials. We began putting the initial beds into a cover crop mix to repair that soil and provide a healthy environment for flowers. Flowers really don't hide poor soil conditions. You really need very healthy soil that's, that's full of nutrients to produce beautiful blooms. So our first focus was getting this, this pasture into the type of soil that we'd like to work. So three years ago, we began that process. Then we started trialing varieties. It's so hard to know what will work in your particular microclimate. We farm on top of a hill, a lot of wind, some extreme weather, and we wanted to take the time to do small-scale varietal trials so we could really get a solid game plan before we started selling bouquets at any scale. So we've gone through oh, 70 or 80 different varieties and been really surprised at what's worked and what hasn't. And so now we're focusing on growing mixed bouquets for a CSA that we have. Mm-hmm. We deliver bouquets to the door. And we also grow a variety of herbs, some culinary, some medicinal, that we either use in the bouquets or sell to herbalists in St. Louis for their, for their use. Wow, nice. Congratulations. There's something so exciting about seeing the plants we've, we've put in the ground mature and see how the insect life in the garden changes. We're totally committed to not using chemicals, and so we just accept that there will be insect damage on some crops, and we accept that we'll have some fungus issues and we'll lose those crops, but we just don't believe in chemical inputs. Yeah. So we also believe that healthy soil, healthy plants, and having perennials and allowing flowers to go past bloom to seed as an insect habitat will produce a beneficial population that will keep the you know damaging insects in check. And that's it's been the third summer now watching this and we're really seeing these changes. It's been so neat to see. An example yesterday I was checking we're growing some heirloom corn at the trial and they were every leaf had at least two lady beetles. It was so oh, cool to nice. see. And lady beetles get half of their nutrition from pollen, and mm-hmm. these heirloom corns produce just enormous masses of pollen. So there are just beetles mating on the pollen, on the leaves, and it's just astounding to see in how relatively short a period of time you can completely change the insect dynamics on your, in your garden scale. We're at an acre, but it's the same thing in, in a, a quarter acre lot or a tenth of an acre or a twentieth of an acre or a patio. The Beneficial insects are incredibly resilient if they have habitat, and it's been so neat to see them start to move in and and kind of push out aphids or white beetles or other things that I think traditionally, not by us, but traditionally would have been treated with an insecticide spray or other chemical. Yeah. Well, you know, you said it a couple of times, the, the healthier the soil, the healthier the environment, the healthier the plants are going to be, and they're going to be more resilient. Yeah, that's, that's in our experience, that's absolutely true. Nice. And what drives you? Really, really love seeing the soil come back to life. I love seeing that micro environment we've created evolve. It's, it's so wonderful to be up there working at dawn or dusk and see dragonflies over the garden, see beneficials, see native bees, and see how directly our physical work and our goals for the land can manifest in healthier soil, healthy insects. It's been so rewarding to watch. Mm -hmm. How sweet is that? 
If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I'd recommend a book on flowers by Lisa Ziegler. It's named Cool Flowers. It's about how to plant hardy annuals in the fall for spring and summer harvest. And it completely revolutionized how I looked at flower farming. I had traditionally thought you want to grow flowers, everything's a springtime activity. You plant a lot in the spring, you harvest in the summer, and you repeat. And Lisa opened my eyes to the world of fall planting. Many of our most beautiful flowers do best if planted in September, October, depending on your climate, then overwintering either under a cover or under a thick mulch before really zooming up to life in the spring for harvest. And that's been just transformative about how we plant our, our flower garden. Nice. That must be really gratifying for you. It, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I'd encourage everyone to find a way to keep their food waste in their garden. I think even in a very small urban scale, people would be amazed at how much they can keep in their yard, in their garden bed, at home, and how radically that transforms their gardening. I, think, I really encourage everybody to just try out these food diversion techniques, even at a small scale, get a worm bin, get a bakashi bin, get a compost tumbler, whatever it is that, that feels right for them, and just try keeping some of that in the garden and see how that enlivens their gardening. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Matt. Oh, super fun, Greg. Thanks for talking to me. You bet. So tell us how our listeners can get a hold of you and get a Bokashi bin. Well, our website is blhfarm.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook under BLH Farm. We, all, we, we absolutely love getting messages from people, and we answer a lot of questions about home composting from people who have never been and probably never will be our customers. We just love giving advice from our experience on how they might improve their composting methods. So send us a message on Facebook or Instagram or email us through the website, and we'll get back to you. We, we love having people do this themselves and hearing and seeing what they're doing in their gardens. Excellent. And the URL again is? It's www.blhfarm.com. And that has our blog where we show what we're doing on the farm. It has our shop where they can buy bins and worms and worm bins. And it has links to our social media there as well. Awesome. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash BLH farm. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. 
It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.